0: change us. Let it work in our hearts so that we would know the power, the conviction, and the work of your spirit in our lives. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, William Penn was convinced that he was going to create a city different than the horrors that he experienced in the European cities of the 17th century. He was going to create a city that didn't have the crime, the congestion, the immorality as he saw in cities like London. And so he was dead set on designing a city that would be different. And he did that. He designed a city that the streets were wider. There were five city squares in the city for people to congregate. There was room for every house to have a family garden. And he populated this city with predominantly this very tolerant and moral group called the Quakers. They didn't like people lying, so they abolished lying. That was against the law in the city. It's also against the law to perform stage plays, have cards or dice. It's another issue. But the city was called Philadelphia because it was going to be the city of brotherly love, the city that we all will cheer for today. Correct, right? <laughs> yes. Except maybe one person here today. Um, well, is it, does it live by its name, Philadelphia? How do we know if it's truly the city of brotherly, la- brotherly love. Is its name true? Well, if you were a Vikings fan two weeks ago, you might disagree with the idea of Philadelphia being the city of brotherly love. Some Viking fans got to experience what it's like to go to an Eagles game. Needless to say, many expletives were thrown at them. Some were punched. Beer was poured on them. If you want to read articles about what Vikings fans experienced, at uh, Eagle Stadium you can uh, you can see it was not a pleasurable experience i guess the wider streets and the family gardens didn't resolve all the problems of the city life now we can't judge the whole city of philadelphia based on eagles fans but the question is how do we judge whether a message is true, whether an experiment actually is working, whether it aligns to what reality is. See, there were three other guys that wanted a different city too. And they came into a metropolitan city, and they gave a more ambitious message than William Penn. They said they had a message, a good news message from God. Was this message true? I'm sure there are quite a few doubts in this city. And maybe some doubts today about whether this message is from God. Whether this message is good news. Was it truly a message of good news? To answer that, we have to go to the streets. Just as if we went to the streets of Philadelphia and we interviewed people and got to know people, we would see maybe it's a city of brotherly love. I know Bruce is from around there. And if I judged it on Bruce, I'd say, hey, that's a city of love. In the same way, the Thessalonians were going to judge whether this message was credible by the messenger's actions, by their character, by their life. They were going to go to the streets Find out, did these messengers that brought the good news, is their life truly transformed by this message from God? Let's find out together, shall we? We're in chapter 2, not chapter 3. We'll get to chapter 3. Chapter 3 is printed in your worship guide, but we're going to be in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. So if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to open your Bibles to chapter 2, 1 through 12. If you have your phones... You could always look at it there, too. Um, encourage you just to look at that, not other things. So um, <laughs> let's pay attention. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 from 1 Thessalonians. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother uh, taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom glory. The Word of the Lord. Well, if you're just joining us, we're going through the book of Thessalonians. It's really a letter, one of the earliest letters of all the New Testament, written about just 15 to 20 years after the resurrection of Christ. And really is this crazy little group of people. Coming out of Jerusalem, that are teaching that there is this Jewish guy who was the Son of God, who rose from the dead, who says he's a king and a savior. And this message has now come west to this metropolitan city of Thessalonica called the Second Rome, the Eastern Rome almost the heart of the Roman Empire. And this message has turned things upside down. Here they're talking about a Lord that is not Caesar. People are leaving their places of worship, whether it's a synagogue or the temple. They're abandoning cultural practices to follow this Jewish, like, carpenter? This Jesus, this is what's happening. And it's causing quite commotion in the city that the city government is involved too. Riots have happened. The messengers have been kicked out. This is a message that many people would find very skeptical. Really? He's the king? He's the savior? This is a message from God? God? This is good news. I'm sure it's a lot like skepticism today. We're sold things all the time. Maybe your friend has told you recently they found the perfect shake diet that will give you energy to clean the house all day long, all while having to find calves. You know, that's what will happen if you have this shake. Or maybe this person says, if you listen to this guru, if you listen to these tapes, it will fix all your relationships, all while tripling your income. (laughs) You can imagine the backlash that these new Jesus followers would have had. The comments they would have gotten from other, the skepticism. You think this guy... From Jerusalem, a carpenter is greater than Caesar? How do you know? How do you know this is true? See, there are philosophers and teachers like this that come through town all the time. That's the same as these messengers that have come with this. Where are they now? You don't see them? They ran off to the next town. They just wanted your money, they just wanted to make a name for themselves. This isn't true. They don't care about you. If they did, they would have stayed. Come back to your roots. Come back to what is true. Worship Caesar. Don't you see he provides for you better than this king from Jerusalem ever could? At this point, hearing these things from other people You might be wondering this. Is this really a message from God? Is what these guys that came to our town said true? Are we really chosen by God? Are we really called by Him? Or is this some fabrication given by snake oil salesmen? Well, how do we know? This is what Paul is addressing here in this chapter. The skepticism that is being portrayed to the Thessalonian church. The messages that these people are hearing. And he's replying to them. And the way that he replies to them is by showing the character of himself and the other messengers. He says, this message is not in vain, meaning... This message is not empty. It had transforming power. Look how it has worked in us. Look how it has driven us to come towards you, even facing persecution. We've already been jailed in one city. (laughs) But we knew the dangers of coming to another. But we still came to you with the message of God. See people in Thessalonica might be slandering Paul and Silas and Timothy. But here Paul is responding saying we don't come with wrong motives. We don't come with deception. But we come from a message of the creator of this world. I think this book is so good. Because its statements are not far from what we hear today. It really applies to us today. And these messages of skepticism that these followers of Jesus in Thessalonica might have received might be very similar to messages that we hear in Appletonia. (laughs) No one has the corner of truth. How do you know Jesus is the way? There's lots of ways to God. These people are just trying to get you to join their group, trying to take your money. How can anyone know there is one God? And if there is a God, how do we know what he actually says? I really believe there's nothing new under the sun. The same pressures that these people faced in Thessalonica are pressures that we face for the message of Christ. It might not take the same form of persecution, not as harsh of being jailed or uh, being um, slandered or whatever is taken away, like these people might have things taken away, but I think our persecution might have a different form. I call it the American persecution of indifference the American persecution of comfortableness. It's a message that says, who cares? It's not that big of a deal. Don't tell me how to live my life. Don't you tell me that there's one way. Let me just live my life the way I want to. And this constant bombarding of this message starts to grind and wear away at the Christian gospel. Until even Christians start to say, eh, "I guess it's not that big of a deal. I guess pluralism is okay. I guess there's many different ways. How can I really know this is true?" Maybe you live by that mantra. Maybe you have family or friends or neighbors that live by that same way of thinking. I really like Frank Turek. You might know him. He's a guy that goes to college campuses and defends the faith. But he really asks a really great question. I might want to ask that question of you this morning if you have those kind of statements about Christianity or faith. Or maybe it's a question you can ask your friends or your family members or Neighbors. And the one question he asked is this. Please hear this. If Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? If Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? My thought and Frank Turek's thought is that the majority of people, while they might not say it out loud, their answer to that question is no. You'll see that people fail to believe the Christian message not because of the evidence. No, they fail to believe the Christian message because they don't want to surrender. See, I don't think it's an issue of the head but it's an issue of the heart and of the will. I don't want to surrender to anyone else but myself. There's nothing new under the sun, is there? What was the first lie? You can become like God. And I think that lie is what continues to permeate all of humanity. Here Paul is saying, we have the true message. We are not deceiving you. In fact, Luke, who m- might have gone with them, this doctor, he is writing about eyewitnesses that have seen Christ. And you can even go and talk to these eyewitnesses about what they have seen. That Christ existed, that he died, that he rose from the dead. You know what? It's not just one person writing about this, but there are four total gospels about Christ. This happened. This is true. And we're coming to you to tell the good news of what's happened so far away. A message from God. That his son has come to earth to save humanity. Again, the skeptics, they are disparaging the character of Paul and the other messengers to disprove the validity of the gospel message. And we see that Paul responds to this. Look with me, shall we? Verse 5. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. See, the accusation against Paul and his other friends is that they're doing this for their own glory. To receive fame and accolades. They're doing it for money. The word here is pretext for greed. I think the Greek is more accurate. It says a mask. We did not have a mask to cover up our greed. We didn't have this mask of flattery. That we just tried to say things to make you feel good so we would become famous and you would give us money. We didn't come with a message so it would benefit us. We came with a message even if it was convicting, even if it was offensive to benefit you. Yeah, we could have gotten paid for this. That's part of our right as ministers of the gospel, but we didn't. We did not want to be a burden to you. In fact, Paul and Silas and Timothy were probably tent makers. We know that Paul was a tent maker and maybe Silas and Timothy helped in it. A hard job, a manual labor job that many of the Gentiles and the Greeks looked down upon. But Paul did this job to raise money to be able to do this work. He didn't rely on the patron support that was Very prevalent in that day where if you didn't have money, you would rely on high, wealthy Roman citizens and you would please them and worship them, go with them to the temple to worship in order that you would get paid by them. He says, it doesn't work that way. I'm not a client trying to please people to get something for myself, to shape my message, so that I can get money from others. No. And who are these guys? Guys that are not ruled by love of money? Guys that are not ruled by people-pleasing? That is crazy. Talk about two things that rule us in our society. Money and fame. And here, these messengers don't care about the people and their pleasing them or the money. They're not ruled by it. But they care about what God thinks. We don't come with a message that's to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. See, their lives show the credibility of their message. The message is entrusted to them by the Lord. Prometheus was a famous character in Greek literature. And it said about Prometheus, he talks about being destroyed by popular opinion. For his liver swelled and grew whenever he was praised and shriveled again whenever he was censured. The liver was, the, for the Greeks, the place where passion came or desire or love or ego. And what he was saying is that he was up when people liked him and he was down when people didn't. You see, Paul is speaking to that idolatry and that pain that these people are facing. Pain that we feel face in our society today. People living for the praise of others. I love it in the Midwest, we kind of think we're immune from that, right? We don't live in Hollywood, we don't live in New York, we don't live on the coast. We can wear, you know, sweatpants around and it's okay. We, We don't worry about what people think of us. I do wonder about that. See, now we have people pleasing at our fingertips, don't we? We can post pictures about where we've been, what we've done, how we look. And maybe our feelings about ourselves go up when the likes go up. And maybe the feelings of ourselves go down when we look at wait, someone's better looking than I am. Someone's family looks put together more than mine. What a hard place to live. Being gauged by the praise of others. I love this. It says, but to please God who tests our hearts The word test is used in the present tense. It's not just a a, a testing that happened in the past, it's something that is continuous. God is continually testing Paul and the messengers about their motives. Why do you do what you do? For praise? For money? God is continually working upon them. What a great message for us. Is he testing you? Why do you do the things that you do? Why do you help others? Is it for your own glory? I'm telling you, people-pleasing is enslaving. It will enslave you. I had a friend in seminary. He said, Are you an approval suck? You just try to suck it in. Approval from others. I've got to get this. This is what gives me life. Reaching out to people saying, tell me something good about me. Sucking it in. What slavery? What Paul and his message are saying, we are not ruled by this. Instead, our identity is found in one that gave up his life for others. Our character points to the credibility of the message entrusted to us by God. I love this the transition that Paul makes between verse 6 and 7 is so powerful. Because the truth is, that message that Paul just said, that I don't care about people-pleasing or greed, could be a very stoic message, stoic philosophy, that says we don't care about what, anything else out there. Okay? We deny everything of this world. That's stoicism. But Paul is saying, that is not my message to go live on a hill and meditate and deny everything in this world. No, our message is that we are active in the life of the world. That we actually like people. We love them. We are involved in their lives. We do not remove ourselves from the world, but we are involved in God's world. But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother, Taking care of her own children. So, being effectually desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. See, Paul is equating the love that he has for the Thessalonians with the love of a mother for a child. Mother love is powerful. Okay? We've just been talking about that. Mother love doesn't flow out of obligation or simply duty. It comes out of genuine care. It just flows from you. And sometimes, I know it doesn't always flow mothers. I know there are times they don't feel that way. But if you see I see as I see Aaron love our kids, there's this love that I Sometimes just don't have the care for them. That's what he's saying. I love you in this way. And then he equates the father's desire. A father's desire to encourage and exhort their children. A father's desire to teach their child the ways to go. Just that Innate desire for a dad to pick up the baseball and the glove and go in the backyard and just throw to play catch. To hug their daughter when they're hurting and to encourage them. Paul's saying, this is my love for for you. It's my love for this church. This is a powerful image. A powerful image for a guy that might have only been with them for three weeks, maybe up to six months. We don't know, somewhere in that range. How could he love these people? He hardly knows in this way. My community group made a great point on Wednesday. He said because he had experienced that type of love himself. The love of a God who pursued him gently and cared for him, brought him people around him to love him, even though he was a persecutor of Christians. They still discipled him and cared for him. It was a father love that corrected him and changed his way of thinking from killing Christians to now grace and mercy and love. And for Paul, he says, this isn't just a message. This isn't just something I write on paper. No, but it comes out of my whole self. See, the message of the gospel has its truth and its foundation in that it's transformational. It's not just words on a page. It's the spirit moving in people. And Paul says it has moved in me. It has brought power and conviction in the Holy Spirit not to love out of duty and compulsion but to love out of divine care and grace because I know the love that I've received from my Father in heaven. See, people are not simply projects to Paul. They are men and women made in the image of God. I wonder, does this kind of love mark us? Does that kind of love mark us as a church? It's not what I have to do, but it's something that just flows from the gospel that has convicted me and transformed me. That I love my enemies. I love those that are different around me. Not because I'm supposed to do it, because God first loved me. I realize I am just like them, a sinner saved by grace, that the care that God gave to me, I can give to them. Do you know what's so fascinating about this book? These are three guys that never walked with Jesus physically. But they their lives were walking with Jesus. It's crazy. Jesus spent three years trying to beat into his disciples' heads that you should hang out with tax collectors and prostitutes and Samaritans and those that are the least in the lost. Why? Because that's the message of the good news. That God comes to the broken. He comes to the sick. And here are three guys that never were around him for that three years, but here they were living it out because, you know what? Christ lived in them. And they hung out with Gentiles, which were worse than Samaritans, worse than tax collectors, worse than prostitutes. They went to the ends of the earth to love people. Do you believe that as a Christian? That Christ is in you. He lives in you. That you can walk with him. Even though it's not physically that we are with him. But we are with him spiritually. To transform us and change us. To live in that way. See Paul is trying to show That the credibility of the message is by the markings of a transformed life of him and his companions. I got to read two stories of individuals this week, and I was surprised by putting them next to each other, the juxtaposition of these two individuals both very passionate about what they believe in, both very serious about trying to do the work of their message. How do I know which one is true? One of them was an article and a YouTube video that I saw by uh, Business Insider. Business Insider is a periodical and they do interviews of business people, and uh, this interviewer um, got to spend a week with Tony Robbins. If you don't know Tony Robbins, he's a motivational speaker, big guy, really tan, (laughs) Um, and he has this um, conference called Date with Destiny Conferences. If you want to go, it's $5,000, you can go to his Date with Destiny Conference and we got to this reporter got to see his life for a week, and so uh, Tony Robbins flew the reporter to his remote island in Fiji. Actually, just right outside of Fiji, it's his own island out right outside of Fiji. Got to spend a morning with him to see Tony Robbins' routine. One hour of meditation Tony spends then he has a special dietitian that gives him special energy drinks that he drinks he has his own personal fitness coach his own specialized workout equipment in his own villa the reporter was blown away that tony in the whole week that he was there spent an extra hour with him going to a waterfall that it was on the island and swimming with him for an hour under the waterfall Then I read a story about a guy I'd never heard before. I thought I knew church history well. A guy named Robert Chapman. A 19th century, very successful lawyer. But when he was just in his twenties, he heard the message of the gospel and became a Christ follower. Over ten years he got more interested in ministry and he gave up being a lawyer to become a pastor. He took over a church, his first church, a struggling church. He had three pastors in 18 months. And he bore with the congregation. After two years, there was a split in the congregation. The smaller group still wanted the church building. And Chapman, saying it was better to be wrong than to have Christ's name be put to shame, allowed the smaller group to have the church. He continued to minister that church his whole life. 99 years. Robert lived a life of trying to reconcile people, a peacemaker. There are stories of his constantly giving coat off his back to people in need. Money to people that needed money, his train trip money, and he would go on the train having no money trusting that the Lord would provide his trip home. He became friends with Hudson Taylor, George Miller, Charles Spurgeon, you know, kind of those pillars of faith in Great Britain in the 19th century. He says, my business is to love others, not to seek others love me. I had wondered, why have I never heard of Robert Chapman? Because Robert Chapman says, "I'm disturbed by Christian celebrity." He made sure that his sermons were not published. He tried hard to not have his journals, you know, read after he, he died. He said this because what is most precious in the sight of God is often least noticed by men. He preached his last sermon when he was 98 years old, an hour and 15 minutes. And that church that split off revered him greatly later in his life and sought reconciliation. Look at them side by side. What message is true? Dan, you're being awfully judgmental. I'm sure Tony Robbins has had much influence on many people, and he has. I'm sure Robert Chapman fell short, and he did. I am not being judgmental towards them as people. What I am judging is what they follow. Which message will bring life? What message will bring true change? What message is a message from God? Dig down deep, self-actualize, work hard, get what you can, you'll succeed like me, an island off Fiji. Or one that says, he did it for me, he saved me. I will even bear with people that persecute me because I know what God has done by sending his son, Jesus Christ. I know there might be skeptics out there. So I just want to close with this. I hear that story. I say, I mean, so many Christians are corrupt. They use the Christian message for their own gain, for their own power. The Christian character in life doesn't prove that Christ is true, the message is true. I agree with you. I will give you that point. I think the Christian message is bolstered by transformed lies but it doesn't collapse by corrupt ones. In fact, it finds its true validity in a life that was not corrupt. See, all messengers, whether Tony Robbins, Deepak Chopra, Oprah, or the Apostle Paul, have fallen short. You see, here is the messenger that has proven true. Here is the messenger that showed in his character he could live a life that we could not. My charge to you is a charge that Paul gives in verse 12. We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Will you walk in his ways? Will you let him rule your life? Will you live a life in Christ? so that your life would be transformed and your character would show through, not to be enslaved by others, not to be enslaved by money, not to be enslaved by this world, but to live freely in your love and your sacrifice for others. You know, that's what communion is. You coming forward, you walking forward is a sign of saying, I need this character in my life. I need this messenger in my life. I don't know if you're there. You might not be. You might be one just questioning, a skeptic. That's okay. I would love to talk to you. I'd love to just sit down and hear where you're coming from, take you to lunch. A lot of people in this church would. We want this to be a place where you can belong, process. But we do hope that you would come to Christ. So what we're going to do is, this side's going to come over here, this side's going to come this station over here. We have, do we have gluten-free wafers? Yes. And we have white grape juice on the outside, red wine in the middle. And if you have kids that aren't taking communion, we'd love to be able to pray for them. You'll take the elements, and then you'll return back to your seats, okay? This isn't a table for Presbyterians. It's not a table for Emmaus Row. This is a table for those that trust in Christ. And then what we'll do is after we take the elements, return to your seats, and we'll all partake of the elements together.